Hello, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, we'll be beginning our look at the final book in the Broke Cycle called The System of the World. This is book eight. Um, and it's uh, it's a really wonderful conclusion to the story. It's, it's one of my favorite books in the series, um, as we'll talk about in a couple episodes. So uh, it's also the shortest book in the entire series. Um, and basically it wraps up all the loose threads that we still have more or less and really pushes this theme of of the system of the world and what that actually is going to mean and how europe is moving into a new new epoch the industrial age more or less in fact i think the last scene we get is back with thomas newcomen so this whole volume begins and ends with thomas newcomen's uh steam engine um, but uh, actually, quite a lot happens in, in the part I want to talk about uh, today. Um, how, what, how much time is, is passes in this episode? So let's say uh, almost two months, from August 4th to September 29th, um, is, is covered here. Um, so as we picked up last time at the end of Currency, we saw the, the death of Queen Anne and the you know the established like kind of the success of the Whig faction and the Hanoverian transition, the failure of the Tories to to defeat that on the streets with with mob violence. Uh, but there's still other machinations going on. The Jacobites still believe they have a chance, and the the different Tories you know think that they can maybe use the picks, use scandals about coining, you know use the uncertainty of the time to still get into power but you know it's it's kind of an inevitable for um conclusion what's going to happen but we still have to deal with the trial of the picks and we also have to deal with uh what the fate of jack shafto that's really the two things that run through this oh and the fate of the calculus dispute and the, really the philosophical dispute between leibniz and and newton and we get a taste of all a little bit of all that in the in the first hundred pages or so of the system system of the world we, we pick up about six or seven days after the, the announced death of Queen Anne. Um, and Daniel is getting up. So it's, it's August 4th, 1714. Daniel's being woken up and being told he's got to go to the Duke of Marlborough's levee. Now this levee thing, this is like a waking up ceremony or something that Louis XIV did. And I love this little bit because it, it kind of suggests, you know, still have this aristocratic attitude in England and this popular tradition gets brought in not for a king but for one of the most important people in england at the time the duke of marlborough uh he's got a nice character arc actually the duke of marlborough you know he spent time in the tower you know he was a general for a while then he got kicked out and he was brought back during the war of the spanish session and now he's essentially ruling uh through he's ruling as kind of a regent at, at this point in the story and he will until until king george gets all set up in in england and they go through this levee tradition, which involves, you know, all kinds of ceremonies, including some people holding like the the urinal thing, like the chamber pot for, for the Duke of Marlborough. Apparently, this is something Louis XIV did, did every day, and being a, invited to the levee was kind of a, a big deal um, and something you sort of had to do. Um, so anyways, Daniel gets word uh, in... Uh, at this point that he is going to become the regent or he's going to become one of 25 regents. There's like a note that to open. I think the Duke of Marlborough maybe opens it and it leaves instructions for the, for the transition. 
And you really feel Daniel's just overall anxiety at being in this circle. He never felt quite up to being standing alongside these aristocrats. Um, and, you know, he doesn't really feel he should be there. He thinks, you know, other people are better suited to, to rule. But nevertheless, he's been made part of this panel, if you will, of, of regents. So that's the main thing that happens in this chapter. But we do see Daniel reading another one of Dapa's uh, pamphlets. They get, they're getting posted on the anti-slavery pamphlets. And this is, of all these, maybe the most interesting thematically to our book. I, I've kind of already expressed my concerns of how the slavery question is, is kind of handled in this book. I think it could have been a bigger theme. Um, I mean, I'm saying that knowing bonanzas about slaves who you know, do a, do a raid on Bonanza and become rich and then poor and travel around the world. So slavery is up and, and we get into the history of slavery quite a lot in that. That's, that's actually a better take on slavery than I think what we get on the system of the world, which really kind of breaks down into DAPA getting involved in politics and using Charles White as a foil to make political arguments as well as arguing against slavery. But this is one of the, the better DAPA essays that we get in the book. And this one's called A Meditation on on power and what he talks about is how kind of in the traditional view he's kind of foreshadowing um adam smith in a way here um maybe bernard mandeville's fable the bees which actually i think was written before this but um, before this would have been in in this alternate universe but the idea is there's kind of a finite amount of power so if i have power over you you have less power right so it's, it's kind of a, a zero-sum game Right. Um, so it's like stock shares that if, if it goes up for one people, someone else loses. Uh, if the Whigs gain power, the Tories lose it. That's the traditional view of power. And Dapa here says, no, I don't think this is necessarily true. He writes, I propose a novel theory of power, which is inspired by the lubrications of Mr. Newcomen, the Earl of Lost Withiel and Dr. Waterhouse on the engine for raising water by fire as a. Mill makes flour, a loom makes cloth and a forge makes steel. So. We are sure this engine shall make power. If the backers of this design speak truly, I have no reason to deprecate their honesty. It proves that power is not a conserved quantity for the power in the world. It or is not a conserved quantity for such quantities as never, it is never possible to make more. The amount of power in the world that follows is an ever increasing and the rate of increase grows faster as more of these engines are built. A man who hoards power is therefore like a miser who sits on a heap of coins in a realm where the currency is being continually debased by production of more coins than the realm market can bear. So that what was a great fortune when he first, when first he raked it together, insensibly becomes a slag heap and he's found to be devoid of value when at last he takes to the marketplace to be spent. And he kind of says, this is the, this is uh, going to doom slavery in a way. It's kind of the subtext. Um, but he's kind of calling out the Tories who are trying to cling to their power and their traditions when they're actually entering this new system of the world. So he's kind of using this mod this metaphor of industrialization, this analogy on, on industrialization and the power created by the steam engine to talk about how power in the system is, is not something that's conserved. It's something that's constantly growing and something we all can benefit from. So it's, it's kind of like the, you know, cause it, it kind of makes us think of mercantilism versus the Adam Smith idea. Because the mercantilists believe trade was kind of a fixed quantity. And if one country gained, the other country had to lose. But Adam Smith said, no, no. If everyone is seeking out their self-interest, it's going to create overall the wealth of nations. It's going to create a, ultimately post-scarcity, right? This is why Marx was kind of excited by 
uh, the Adam Smith ideas and embraced um, many of them. Because if we can increase production, increase commerce, we can kind of create the over increase the overall amount of, of power. In that case, hoarding power, you know, just means you're going to be debased over time. You know, and that's what happens to the aristocrats at a certain degree, right? They cling to their land power while around them, all these other sources of power are inflating and they just become more and more, uh, the aristocrats would become, they keep the same amount of power they had, but its value in the overall system is less and less and less. Um, so really uh, a nice presentation of, of, I think, one of the major themes of, of the book. You know, Neil Stevenson, he's not a Marxist. He's not really that critical of capitalism there's a few hints here of of criticism but he's not really seeing kind of how those new power systems can be just as authoritarian and violent and and oppressive as as the old just in, in new ways i guess that's kind of marx innovation we're always got class right even if we have different systems and different systems of power and different modes of production you're going to have uh, oppression exploitation built into them all right the next chapter is set in the temple of vulcan um, so this is uh really daniel kind of pondering what the new world is going to be um so you got roger and daniel basically discussing this regent business that's kind of what we have on the surface in this chapter they need to uh work out who's going to do what and what are the big issues on the table before the king takes formal control? One is, of course, is the trial of the picks. And the other thing that really is bothering Roger is this role of Newton. And basically, Roger Comstock suggests that Newton should just be fired. That'd be a lot easier. We could just get rid of him and we could, you know, find a new master of the mint and that would resolve it. But uh, Daniel doesn't really want to do that. At least not yet. And the best thing in this chapter, though, is why alchemy isaac newton's obsession with alchemy is not enough to fire him and daniel at one point daniel would have said yes that that maybe would disqualify him of course daniel's somewhat responsible for him getting in the mint in the first place but daniel instead says there is a new system of the world coming whether it's commerce or science or industrialization new power right democracy whatever it may be, this new system of the world is coming, but it doesn't mean the old system goes away. Um, Daniel says, here's what I told the Duke of Marlborough concerning alchemy. And remember, the Duke of Marlborough and Daniel made a pact way back in book three to destroy alchemy and to work together to destroy alchemy. And it seems at this point, Daniel's telling the Duke of Marlborough, we don't need to do that anymore. And it's kind of, maybe he gets this idea from DAPA in a way. Um, he says, it has been my view for some years that a new system of the world is being created around us. I used to suppose that it would drive out and annihilate any old, older systems, but things have been recently in the subterranean places beneath the bank um, I, and convinced me that the new systems will never replace the old ones, but only surround and encapsulate them, even as under a microscope we may see that living within our bodies are immaculate, smaller and simpler than us, and yet thriving even as we thrive. When we have stronger microscopes, I should not be surprised to discover yet smaller and smaller organisms within those immaculates. And so I say that alchemy should not vanish, and as I always hoped. Rather, it shall be encapsulated within the new system of the world and become as familiar and ever-comforting presence there. Though its name may change, and its practitioners speak no more of the philosopher's stone, 
It shall be gone from view, but it shall continue to run beneath as the lost river Walbrook streams beneath the bank of England. Um, now, Roger's a bit dismissive of this idea, but this is a, such a core idea of, of the book, especially this, these final chapters, is that, you know, just as power will expand around the old bastions of power, weakening them, so ideas like alchemy will be over overwrought and transform into something else, become chemistry, become superstition, become uh, certain types of religions, whatever it might be, they're still going to be part of the new system, but they're going to have to work within the new rules. If you will, a nice, um, nice stuff uh, there. I think these two chapters go together, connected. This Daniel's conversation and Dapa's discussion on, on, um, on power. Next, we go to the Kit Kat Club in the next chapter. It's the same day, still August fourth, and it's kind of a, another meeting of the the club of. The, the gang of investigators who are trying to figure out what's going on with the infernal devices. You know, in many ways, much of that's been resolved. Jack was revealed. Isaac made a deal with Jack. But there's still things to work out, like who built the infernal devices? What's up with the phosphorus production? And where did it come from? And all of that. So, and, and Isaac seems not willing to really back up his deal to Jack anymore. I, I guess I maybe I missed where, why that actually happened. Maybe it's because Jack bailed before they could finally work out the deals but the deal's sort of off whatever deal that jack and daniel sort of made is off and and isaac still wants to capture um jack shafto so they got this club and you know uh uh leibniz is at this meeting too and and daniel offer suggests that he join um and they know isaac would vote against this but they he eventually gets to join the club as well And then Isaac and Daniel have a pretty frank conversation about the trial of the picks, um, the the currency, and, and Isaac's pissed off at Daniel because he seems to be associating with Leibniz, who, you know, Isaac sees as the big enemy of um, of in the world, like his biggest enemy in the world. Uh, he is the German, right? Um, and Daniel sort of says, like, you're going to have to accept this the authority of the regents and the authority of me. And that means, you know, putting your interests behind the interests of the mint and the currency and, and, and the king quote, like it or not, I am one that is a regent and must answer and must ask such questions. And the question boils down to this. Do you respect the authority of the king or the regents appointed to act in instead? And do you place the mint and the currency above other more personal interests? Or does the philosopher's stone come first? And then, Isaac sort of calls Daniel a, a, a pale image of his father because his father was a revolutionary, right? So now you got Daniel actually ruling, being a king, uh, something that would have horrified, not really being a king, but acting on behalf, be the, the behest of a king. Now, the the group does find, uh, they, they discover uh, this man, Mr. Marsh, who's like the urine contract for Jack. And so... They figure now we can do this to, to kind of catch Jack. We, we have a kind of an end to catch Jack in some way, or at least to catch where he's doing this phosphorus. So they create a plan to, to find where this is. And it turns out it's in Surrey, right? And so as we get into the next chapter, which is set in Orney's shipyards, I guess, yeah, it's about uh, it's nine days later. It's August 13. 
1714, they have kind of set into motion their plan. And basically the thing is that they're going to use this marsh, this urine contract, to to organize a buy, and someone's going to be hiding in the wagon, counting the wagon wheels. So they'll know kind of which direction to go, how far to go, and, and locate it that way. So that's the plan. I think it's Isaac Newton who comes up with this, um, this plan. So after this, this, uh, this buy, uh, they have the information, right? They have a rough idea of where Jack's operation is in the North Downs, up in Siri somewhere. Um, so they know where to go. And so they collect a team of soldiers. It's going to be commanded by Bob Shafto, and they're going to march on the, this, this coiner's operation and hopefully find Jack or find his accomplices that can help locate Jack. We also here, though, get an interesting conversation. Well, it's not, I guess it's not interesting, that, that interesting, but it's important. And that's, it's more of Isaac's relationship to the Solomonic gold, in part because, you know, Daniel's or Isaac's pretty pissed off at Daniel for for hiding away the gold. Remember, he's basically already arranged for it to be shipped off, eventually with Leibniz to the, um, you know, to Germany to be part of the logic mill. And there, there's also uh, Daniel kind of reflecting on why he's working with Isaac, even though Isaac's increasingly hostile towards him. And he's talking to Saturn about this. Um, and he says to Saturn. It's a perfectly sensible question. I think it is simply simple for him, complicated for me. Snared as I am in a mare's nest of compromises and accommodations, which would s seem like one of those hairballs we used to pull from cow's bellies, a nasty mess that ought to be swept away. He'll not be satisfied with anything less than the destruction of Bolingbrook, Charles White, Jack Shafto, Leibniz, and, if I've been so foolish as to get tangled up with him, me, Peter. I can't summon anything like the fury of Newton, hot as a refiner's fire. Perhaps I and others really are nothing more than schlock to be raked over the top of his crucible and dumped in the ground to harden and blacken. Um, so, you know, the question of just how far Isaac will go in attempting to achieve his victory is 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 suggested here. Um, so the next scene we get, the next chapter, is a pretty long one. It's set in Surrey. Um, I believe it's the next day. Uh, yeah, August 15th, 1714. And uh, it's basically Bob Shafto, the natural philosopher gang, the, the club group, marched following this map that was created by this uh, guy counting the wheels in the, in the wagon to where Jack's operation is, where the urine was being delivered to. It's a fun, it's, it's, it's one of our later introductions to Bob. We see a little bit more of him, I guess, in the book, but this is our last, I guess, really focused look at Bob Shafto. Still a soldier, still doing what he's commanded, uh, but being anxious about marching soldiers in England. It's not something he's used to. He's used to being in Ireland or, or the continent, you know, fighting wars or whatever. But now he's marching troops um, for what could be a battle. It's not clear how many troops how much force Jack's operation has. So they bring a whole contingent of soldiers here. Um, eventually they do find the place, which is an old house owned by Bolingbroke. Um, and it's also, as a matter of fact, uh, the house the house that Isaac Newton was sort of fostered in for a while. Uh, I guess it was like his dorm when he was in school or something, in boarding school. It's that first time we meet Isaac Newton way back in the first book um, when he was just a kid. Um, and remember, he was staying with that alchemist, and Enoch Root comes to visit him, and 
the alchemist says, should we train him to be alchemist? And Enoch Root says, no, we want to let him go his own way in the world. Uh, and the guy agrees. And of course, Isaac Newton would do his own thing, even though he would kind of be an alchemist too. So it's, it's also an old domain of alchemy. It's like an old alchemy center. So we see this factory. Again, a hint of the emergence of an industrial society um, being based on an old alchemy, alchemist lab, right? And I, and I think there might be some truth to that because, I mean, here's where you, you might almost think, well, maybe this guy is a crypto Marxist in a way because, I mean, that's how Marx talks about capitalism, right? The alchemy of currency, right? How commodities can be exchanged, that, you know, how one thing can be made into another through division of labor and the application of power and the application of machinery uh, and how money just kind of uh, evaporates all these social relations and makes commodities just real and appear to us. Um, you know, now it's so bad you just push a click a button on your screen and it comes to your door the next day. Um, and you have no really relation to the production of these things at all. Um, so there is an alchemy to it, right? And I think that's partially what Daniel's saying is like, yeah, we'll have a new system in the world, but alchemy will be a part of it, um, just in a way that's maybe not recognizable to the to the people with the with the hats, with the stars and moons, and trying to turn lead into gold. That's that's the old medieval style kind of alchemy, but there's still going to be alchemy in the system. And it's kind of being symbolized here by this alchemy house being transformed into a, a factory making red phosphorus. So they eventually do find evidence that Jack's making phosphorus here. They find actually red phosphorus, which is what's being used in the infernal devices as the triggering mechanism. And at one point, one of the soldiers like fires a shot and the whole place explodes. Uh, um, and there's a kind of a funny scene where Isaac falls on his falls on the ground and really can't get up and he's all hurting and Daniel doesn't remember any time he's seen Isaac sort of feign pain and suffering it's kind of a little funny aside seeing these old fogies going on this little quest right and you know they're too old for this for sure right but they they're driven by their you know their quest to just to, to solve this mystery right now, while this is going on, Bob is actually confronting some of Jack's men, and they turn out to be Tomba, Jimmy, and Danny. So Tomba's kind of a new character, someone who just got recruited into Jack's circle sometime between book volumes two and three. Um, a, a, a black um, person. I don't know if he was a former slave. I, I suppose he might have been. But Jimmy and Danny have been recruited into this network, too. We, we saw him in, in Solomon's Gold as part of the Raid on the Mint. And they meet Bob and are like, oh, it's our uncle. And they kind of chit chat a little bit, negotiate. They know once they get captured that they're going to be punished as, punished as coiners. And probably the best they can hope for is a quick hanging um, instead of a, a slow death by being dismembered and drawn and quartered. Uh, but they're pretty uh, fatalistic about it. Now, with the capture of Jimmy and Danny and Tamba, the... Jack's motivations change significantly, right? So he's now he really wants to fulfill his goal of providing for his sons. And so, so much of his ambitions from now on to the end of the book is going to be how do I get Jimmy and Danny safe, rescue them and get them to to Carolina uh, or, or they might need to go. Now, back to the philosophers, the old fogey philosophers, um, they they find this King George coin 
which Isaac says he hasn't really been prepared yet. They haven't really made the molds for them yet. So this is counterfeit coin. So again, we're reminded that counterfeiting is still taking place. Um, but it's at this point that Threader confesses that he is part of the coining operation. He's involved with this. And and he's kind of been an inside man. And now half the group almost, half of the club has been in some ways inside agents of, of, of Jack in a way. So Threader, and we saw early on in Solomon's goal that Threader was being kind of suspicious as he was traveling through uh, on their way to London, um, probably tied to this coining stuff. Um, but Threader's on his ground begging Isaac not to do the worst to him. And eventually Threader essentially offers to give up Jack in exchange for saving his life. So this whole chapter is really, really a lot of fun. It's, it's nice to see Bob Shafto again, who's, you know, he's always been a minor character, but he's, he's a likable character. And uh, we kind of see his story somewhat wrapped up. Uh, some really great Jimmy and Danny moments here too, um, talking with their uncle. And their kind of fatalism about their own, their own fate. Uh, and then I think the whole thematic of, of an alchemy lab being transformed into a phosphorus factory. Um, which, of course, makes sense because alchemists played with phosphorus all the time. But it's an industrial operation at this point. I wonder what he need all that phosphorus for. Just a few bombs. Um, all part of the coining operation, I guess. All right, next chapter. Now we get to it. It's set uh, a few days later, August 18th. It's at the Leister House, the library. And this is, in some ways, a climax of the book. We've been hearing from the very, from Odalisk at least, actually from, from, actually from Quicksilver on the this calculus dispute problem, uh, the tension between Isaac Newton and Leibniz. And then, as the books went on, we saw more and more how their dispute was largely philosophical. Right now, Caroline, she appears. She's at the Leicester House, uh, out of hiding, dressed in her, you know queenly robes and and outfit and she basically sits down Leibniz and Newton and says you got to work out your disputes oh one more thing but before this happened they 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 get news that Jack's been captured um and he's been put in Newgate I don't know why this is all off screen he could have had a short chapter seeing Jack get captured he just felt he didn't need it which is fine I guess um because it doesn't really add much to the story whatever Threader did and set up they caught Jack um with the evidence they had from the house in Surrey and they're able to capture him. So Jack's going to be in Newgate for pretty much most of the rest of the novel, um, waiting for his execution as a coiner. Um, but the main thing in this chapter is this Caroline bringing I, uh, Isaac Newton and Leibniz together to work out, hash out their philosophy. And she says, why? And she says, the reason why is because we need a new system of the world and I'm going to be at the center of it. London's going to be the center of it. England's going to be a center of it. And you're going to have this Germanic and British influence. I want, Caroline says, the two greatest minds in the world working for me. But they have to have some common ground. They can't be enemies, philosophical enemies. So work it out. Work it out. And so we get a, I guess it's, it's not as long as I remember. I remembered it being longer. But it, it is a good 20 pages or so. It's, you know, uh, he calls it the philosophical showdown in at Leicester House. Um, and anyways, they start talking um, once Caroline sort of structured this debate and set it up. 
Um, and the first blows that go back and forth are Isaac Newton saying, why are you calling me an atheist in public print? And Leibniz says, I don't call you an atheist. I say your ideas, the way you present your ideas, may lead people to atheism. And they fight about that for a while. Um, but... But that's just a distraction. That's just a personal gripe. It starts out as this personal gripe. It's not the core philosophy that Caroline wants to work out. And it's not even just about the calculus anymore, right? It's about so much, so much more. Um, in fact, I think you could really just take this section out and, and read it as a, as a fun little summary of, of the philosophical themes that run throughout this whole book. Caroline says, for instance, that this system, if it's set up wrong, might be doomed from the start. Oh, it shall be a wonder to behold at first, and all shall marvel at its regularity, its economy, and the ingenuity of them who framed it. Perhaps it shall work as planned for a decade or a century or more, and yet if it's been made wrong at the beginning, it shall burn in the end, and my vision shall be realized at a manner infinitely more destructive than this. End quote. Um, now, of course, no system can be as perfect as Caroline's hoping to, to make it, right? Nothing, nothing, no system can be a perpetual motion machine, right? All empires fall. All world systems, all philosophies, all institutions decay over time. This just seems to be a historical fact. Um, you know, but the modern world has had a good run. So uh, I'm not quite sure Stevenson's point on this. At one point later in the book, towards the end, he makes the point like, uh, this system may even destroy us at some days, but it's the best possible world to use a Leibnizian kind of concept that we can create right at this time it's better than the alternatives that, that could have been offered up um but anyways back to the debate they start out with uh newton on god and stuff like that and newton doesn't believe in the trinity and leibniz calls him out on that but he's saying i'm not an atheist um i don't know should i go through this debate step by step i don't i don't think so um so atheism, a lot on materialism, because Daniel's the true materialist here by this point. He's actually become the true atheist. So he's the, you know, neither Leibniz or Newton admit to being an atheist. But Daniel sort of says, maybe I am. You know, it's he's he's much more believer in a deterministic universe. So the way I understand it, Newton's saying God is the great mover of everything. He's determining everything in the universe. He's always like the planets going around the sun, the forces all these things are the work of God's constant intervention in, in our universe. Um, then, you, of course, you have like the clockmaker argument, which both sort of deny here that God just is the clockmaker. I guess Leibniz is closer to the clockmaker deistic argument, but he believes in the Trinity. So it's, it's you know, it's, it's not, we're not in the Enlightenment yet. These ideas are still being formed. But Leibniz is closer to the clockmaker idea, saying God created a universe that's self-sustaining, right? Why? It'd be, it would undermine God's power and omnipotence to make it for, for him to make a system where he has to be involved all the time, right? The more omnipotent thing to do would be create a system that's self-sustaining for eternity. Now, the question is, what are the forces, right? And for Leibniz, you have the monads. And there was a, Newton makes some snide rem remarks about the monads. But that's really what Leibniz is saying, is that there's something actually working, you know, at the like at the atomic level, if you want to use atomic theory, I, he uses monads because atoms doesn't really work for whatever reason, philosophically or whatever. But there's something working, creating these forces through their perception or whatever. But there has to be something there. Um, where does he say? Uh, 
He says, Leibniz says, this is not my view, as I think you know. I believe that God takes part in the world's workings in every moment, but not in the sense of mending what is going awry. To say otherwise is to say God makes mistakes and changes. His mind, instead, of which I believe is a pre-established harmony reflecting that God has foreseen all and provided for it. Now, it's, it's Daniel who comes up as perhaps being the true materialist um, and a skeptic, I guess. I'm trying to find the exact passage where he says it, uh, but um, he says, I actually do think it's all reducible to just uh, just mechanical gears in our head, which is a very modern kind of science fiction idea, right? The, the old thought experiment of if you replace an arm, you give someone a new arm, are they human? Yeah. If you replace the other arm, they're still human. At what point, if you keep replacing parts, at what point do they stop being human? If we're purely mechanical and you can replace even the neurons in our brain one for one, and we create those relationships, then, then we'd still be the same, right? We'd still be that that entity, uh, that the I, right? The, it'd still be the ego. Um, but but Daniel seems to be closer to that that perspective than either Leibniz or Newton. Um, but the world's not ready for Daniel's materialism, I don't think, at this point. Now, other things they talk about is free will. Because, of course, this is another problem once you start saying God kind of preordained the universe or is interfering at all times. Both lead us to cast doubt about free will. If the universe is deterministic, then where's free will? Is it just a gift from God? If God's constantly intervening, what's that doesn't seem to make sense either in terms of free will. So they get into that discussion. Um, they do the God as a watchmaker. They discuss Descartes, the mind-body dualist problem. Um they discuss forces and how forces work. Um, yeah. He, so as for forces, this is again kind of the monadology. He, 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 goes to, he says to Waterhouse, I would say that the mechanism described not just half, but all of it. I take the opposite view, which is that um, vegetable is all. And what we think of as mechanical is only the superficial superficialities of underlying processes, which are not mechanical at all. So God is still there in the at the level at that lower level that's the monads right there is something supernatural about the monads they're not purely mechanical things that can be replaced with a, with a you know with a part he, he kind of accuses a waterhouse here of being a, a materialist saying philosophers of a mechanical frame of mind break all things down to atoms which they ascribe properties to them seem reasonable which mean mechanical properties mass extension and the ability to collide with and stick to one another then from this they try to explain gravity and souls and miracles it leads them into difficulties instead i break all things down into monads which i ascribe would be what some would call soul-like properties they can perceive think about their perceptions decide and act from this it's no great difficulty to explain those things that are so troublesome in a mechanical-minded atomic philosophy everything that you put under the rubric of vegetation including our own ability to think, decide, and act. However, it's difficult to explain the things that are, in the atomic philosophy, identically simple and obvious, such as space and time, end quote. Which I, which I think is, I guess, true, even in our modern science. So they babble on about these things for quite a long time. It's really fascinating stuff. And the debate ends unresolved, and Caroline is not satisfied with the ending of their, of their debate, but it's okay. In fact, they kind of shake hands at the end and and they agree that if there's going to be a solution to these questions, if there's going to be a solution, a, a true system of the world that 
rectifies all these questions and answers them all, it's going to have to come when there's more evidence, more knowledge, a better telescope, a better microscope, a better methodology. Some point in the future, it may be resolved, but it can't be resolved now, and it may take a thousand years, and we're just going to have to wait. Um, you know, and we'll be long dead, but there'll be other scientists kind of carrying on the, the legacy, which is a very, very optimistic uh, view of the technical, scientific, philosophical side of this new system that's being created, that it will be resolved at some point in the future. Maybe it's still not now. I guess it's not, right? There's still questions about philosophy and, and the, you know, God's existence and uh, free will. We're still debating these kinds of questions, which is why I think Stevenson wrote this book, because he realizes that these are conversations that are still taking place. All right. Great chapter. Now, moving on, uh, London Bridge, August 19, 1714. This is the Daniel and Leibniz goodbye. Uh, Leibniz is ready to return to Germany. Um, and they reminisce a little bit on the good old days um, when Newton was just a telescope maker um, and all this conflict over the calculus and philosophy hadn't yet emerged. These were just young philosophers pursuing their ideas where their evidence and their reason took them. And there's some nostalgia for those days of, of Wilkins and, and, and all that, you know, maybe if you're this far into the book, you're nostalgic for that first volume of Quicksilver. And when you're done, you want to jump back in and, 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 and read Quicksilver again. Uh, it might be, um, how some respond. I'm not going to do it, but I understand where they're coming from because there are, there is a kind of a certain awe and amazement and wonder in that first book where we see Daniel as this young man learning things about the universe, learning things about, you know, through his interactions with Isaac, through his education, through his time at Epsom, you know, he's going to be on the ground floor of something new, right? And by this point, it's become bureaucratic and uh, political and kind of corrupted in a way, right? So it's kind of sad, but they do their goodbyes. And Daniel, I think, helps transfer the logic of not the gold yet the gold is still there but that'll be transferred later but i think the, the the parts of the logic mill are being handed over to to Leibniz and daniel sort of gives that up, finishes that project up and kind of passes it on to his his colleague all right now we have a few short chapters just to wrap up this this episode um next chapter is a month later uh 18th of september at greenwich and this is a uh, Daniel and Ravenscar being brought before the king. Remember, they were been regents for, and I guess that's what Daniel was doing for a month, is regent stuff. But now they're brought before the king, um, and I guess their duties are, they're still part of government. They still have their duties. But Daniel is going to be responsible for the trial of the picks. He's going to be made Lord Treasurer, so he's going to be serving in the government of the new king. They discuss that trial of the picks, which Ravenscar has actually issued. He issued the warrant for it because um, he wants, I think he wants this resolved and over with. Um, and he thinks they caught Jack, so, you know, no problem, right? Um, but Daniel's going to be Lord Treasurer. They discuss Jack's execution at Tyburn. We're constantly being reminded of Jack's fate uh, throughout this whole final volume. Um, they also talk about DAPA, and we can learn more about DAPA's growing fame, how he's become kind of a local celebrity. People are following his story. Uh, people are donating money to him, that he's he's actually doing quite well now. Um, this is the Duke of Marlborough says that. Um, 
He says, when you came to call on me at, at my levy, just as I returned to the city a month and a half ago, I've been reading some of this chap's work. Must have made some remark. Those other chaps must have gone forth and spread the rumor that I was a devotee of Mr. Dapa's work. It seems he has only now become more popular since. People have sent him money. He lives now in the finest apartment that the clink has to offer and strolls in the private balcony there and is called on by fops and whatnot. So he's become sort of famous and he's got a, he's got his uh he's got his GoFundMe uh running. People are loving his pamphlets and he's he's living it up well. It's, it is kind of a, a running theme throughout this uh these books is kind of this criminal justice system is really, really flaky, right? You know, people put in the Tower of London where they're not really that secure. They're chatting with the guards and eating dinner with them. You have at Newgate, if you have enough money, you get special apartments. If you don't, you're just put in the dungeon, which people seem to be able to escape all the time. Debtors at Fleet Prison, you know, they are sort of just left to go because they have to make money. And businesses set up around the prison and prisoners just come out and drink beer at these places. It's and then the punishment is just brutal. It's just execution or hanging. It's not a really well-developed system. And here we see Dapa just because he has money getting um, kind of getting a nice estate, a table, pen, so he can write his little pamphlets, all that stuff. Um, but anyways. Oh, Caroline mentioned something to Dr. Waddle. Sends him on a mission. This mission, as it turns out, is going to be freeing of... of uh, Jimmy and Danny and, and Tomba. And ostensibly, she's doing it for Eliza. So Eliza's, you know, pulling some strings behind the behind the scenes to get them freed. But um, he's been sort of recruited to do this. Um, the next chapter is the death of, of Roger Comstock, of a, of a stroke or a heart attack or something. And Daniel's feeling of, of isolation and anxiety over being sort of left alone. He doesn't really feel up to this. Um, quote, Daniel pulled his hair, hands from his face, and made himself leave off blubbering. No, it's not the sort of thing I'm thinking at all. I have much to do before the 29th of October. Much to do. It seemed almost impos nearly impossible even when Roger was about to do the most of it for me. The others in the Treasury Commission are mountebacks and time servers. So it is I who must organize the trial of the picks. Who do I know? Uh, what do I know of it? Nothing. Clerkenwell Court and Bridal Emergency shut down and liquidated. The Institute of Technological Arts has got to be considered dead. I'll send word to Enoch to sell the cabin. What else? Oh, yes. The Princess of Wales wants me to help a dear friend of hers who's to sort out her love life. What happens to be more fraught with danger and complexities than, let us say, the foreign policy of the Venetian Republic. Um. So that's there. And this is all connected to the fact that I think it's the Duke of Marble orders Daniel to shut down this Solomonic gold mint that's, or this bank that's been established. Um, you know, the, it's already sort of been dealt with by Peter the Great, but it's still there. And he just wants that gold out and gone. And so he's got to deal with that too. So then we have two last two chapters. I'll talk about them as a group. Uh, they're both in Newgate, and they both involve Jack Shafto. Basically, he has three conversations. Um, the first conversation is with Charles White, who arrives to Newgate, and basically he says, Jack, I'll help you get out. I'll arrange for you to get out, and your sons, and anyone else. Tomba, I guess. I think he just mentions the sons. But I'll let you out, and your sons, and you can escape to America. And in exchange... 
uh, you're going to have to write that this is all Newton's fault and then Newton's to blame. And he, you know, Jack doesn't really believe him. Jack immediately doubts um, that he can do that. Um, and all Charles White can do is sort of threaten him with the Jacobites are going to come back to power and then you're really going to suffer or something like that. But Jack will be dead. So it's not, there's not much you can hold over Jack at this point. I mean, he does want his sons freed, but he knows he's probably going to die. So there's, there's not much, um, there's not much they can do to really, um, coerce him. The second person who comes is, is just presented as a, as a mist, as a, as a, like a mysterious figure, but it's, it's Isaac. In fact, the, the tight, the, the section titles sort of tell us it's, it's Isaac Newton, but he's in disguise and he's sick and he's coughing. It turns out he's been going to see Jack a lot and he's kind of got prison fever, jail fever or something from all the, you know, hanging out in jails too much because he's so desperate to have this picks thing resolved. Because remember, he still has, Jack still knows the truth. Are the coins and the picks the true ones or they've been replaced? Where are the real ones if they have been replaced? All that stuff. And Jack tells a pretty vicious lie here. He tells uh, Isaac Newton that Daniel uh, in that Clerkenwell court vault or whatever, where the Solomon of Gold is or whatever, has the original Picts coins, which, of course, Daniel doesn't have. Daniel overhears this and later confronts Jack directly and says, you know, how dare you do that? You know, what did I, I do to deserve this? And, and Jack's point is that he's just trying to get the best deal he can. Um, they talk a little bit about alchemy. Interesting, they're both kind of suspicious of alchemy. They're both kind of modern thinkers in, the, in their own ways. Um, and then the conversation veers over to discussion of Eliza. And Jack's confirmed that he's never going to see Eliza again. Now, Daniel's, of course, being sent by Caroline, right, to kind of send a message on Eliza's behalf, I guess. Um, the end is kind of... Uh, of, of touching. Um, he says, indeed, yes, though I'm by no means fatuous enough to believe in such mawkish fantasies, sir. I know how it is that a young lady, that young ladies perhaps over fond of their theater and the Italian opera can fall under this influence for a time until aging experience slap fall under its influence for a time. Oh, sorry. Until aging experience slap them back to their senses. And so I'll allow that this young lady who sent you may be merely daft, not the least, but malicious. Daniel says, so will she will be ever so gratified to know the king of the vagabonds thinks though and then jack says no need to jab me there doctor till sufficiently trying conversation even without your biting asides i'm getting round to telling you something of great moment which you must relate to this meddlesome lass and that is that follows the woman in question said to me a long time ago that i will never see her nor hear her voice until the day i died and she's not the sort to renege and Daniel says, well, then it falls that if you escape death and board ship for America, you won't see her or speak to her. And then Jack says, that's a very sad fate, um, but it's a fate I've been doomed to. So only through, by, based on Eliza's promise, only through death could he ever see Eliza again. Um, so that's, that's kind of a, a touching um, moment there. Um, but Daniel's kind of got the role of passing notes to, to Jack. So that ends, uh, it's actually quite a big chunk of System of the World. There's only actually 160 pages left in the whole book. Um, I will cover it over the next two episodes. Um, but we're coming to the end of our story here. Um, and 
anyways what happens in the next part it basically surrounds the the prison break where daniel breaks out with saturn's help breaks out jimmy and and danny and tomba and it's a really fun uh set piece um so we'll talk about that next time um so i guess that's it um things are wrapping up very quickly in this series and i'm uh, excited to come to the end of it so anyways if you have any thoughts about any of the issues that came up in this episode or the book or the broke cycle as a whole let me know what they are send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com see you next time thanks for listening